0: Thank you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Ryell. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. you guys as we continue in our series Exiles and Empires. Um, We talked last week about what it means to be a creative minority, kind of establishing the framework for this book, uh, for this passage in the book of Daniel, and kind of painting the scene of our cultural moment versus Daniel's culture moment, and how all these things uh, intertwine. So now we're actually getting to start in the actual book of Daniel. Now, before we get started, I want you to briefly imagine that Netflix has selected you to be their, their feature star in their next documentary, right? They, they come to your house. They're going to pay you buco bucks to do this, right? And you're going to be the star of their new documentary series. Now, you might be thinking, my life's pretty boring, dude. <laughs> I don't know if they want to come film me, but this is what's happening, okay? Now, they're going to interview all the people that you know your friends, your family, your coworkers right? These people who have pretty consistent interactions with you and ask them one simple question. What is it like to know you? What is it like to be in relationship with you? What is it like to be around you? Now, I know what you're probably thinking, the email you're gonna write of, hey, Netflix is coming, don't say anything that's gonna make me look, right? You're already thinking in your mind of things you might have to undo. You're thinking of maybe some interactions you had this week that you'd be like, if they interviewed them this week, I would not be looking good on this Netflix series, and everybody will watch it, and everybody, right? There's automatically this fear of, 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 of what they would, they, would, they would reveal, what they might find. Because each of us know that even in our own idealistic versions of ourselves, we fail to live up to those standards. And there's a gap between who we think we are at times, and who we'd like to be, and who we actually are. And if this film crew follows you for around a long enough, they're going to start seeing a side of you that you're not proud of, right? Especially if the cameras are maybe hidden, or you weren't sure that they were filming, they'd see some things you'd say, some things that you do, some postures you would have, right, that you would not be proud of. Each of us Think about how this person who they catch on tape is not an accurate reflection of who we want to be. And suddenly, each of us are now confronted with a gap from who we are and who we know we are supposed to be. Within ourselves, there's this tension between the people that we find ourselves, the people that we are. Who we are is not formed by an idealized future we long for, but it's formed in the crucible of decisions we make today. Meaning, it's not who you think yourself to be or the thing that one day, right? One day when we get more financial center or one day when we get to this next season of life or one day, one day, one day, but it's the decisions that you make today that form who you are. What we believe about our identity frames and shapes every decision that we make. And human beings have been wrestling with this idea of identity since the garden. So before we get into looking at Daniel and how Daniel uh, in this moment in his life operates out of his identity to remain faithful to God in the midst of Babylon, I want to set up for us a framework around the identity, the competing identities we have today. Our cultural identity versus our redemptive identity. Let's first talk about our culture. Our culture is not neutral. There's no such thing as neutral ground here in the universe, right? Everything is competing with ideologies and different values. Tim Keller says this, Every culture without our permission and without naming it as such imposes an an identity formation process on us, its members. We are constantly being formed by our culture. What's our culture's identity formation mantra? Be true to yourself. Right? That's You hear it all the time, whether the tabloids or celebrities or interviews or whatever, it's always this, be true to yourself or live out your truth or just find and discover who you are. Now, let's be honest. That sounds nice. We could stitch that on a pillow, put it up in, you know, the house, put it on a coffee mug, be true to yourself. Nice, dainty little font, right? It sounds nice. It sounds like it could be something that you would enjoy. But actually, I think this is incredibly harmful to people. And if they adapt this way of identity formation, I think it could be very disastrous. The first reason being because of identity hypocrisy, if who we are is formed by ourselves and being true to ourselves, what happens when we're in conflict with ourselves? What happens when we fail to live up to the standards that we've already established for ourselves? What happens when we cannot live up to the identity that we've made for ourselves? The first thing that's going to happen is failure, right? Each of us know this. On a very simple level, all of us in our minds, our identity, we would like to be people who would consider ourselves to be disciplined right? We're not, we're not savages, we're disciplined, right? And so we try to exemplify this in our diet where we're trying to eat better, you know, more kale, more smoothies, less burgers and stuff like that, right? But then in your office, someone brings in the glorious box of donuts, right? In your mind, I'm a disciplined person, I don't have to do this, but you keep making strolls past the cafe area, right? And just keep looking, chocolate's still there? Don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it, right? We have this up in our mind, and then ultimately you crumble, right? You eat the donut, and then you're like, oh, wow. And then you justify, right? And it's okay to have a donut. I'm not, like, judging people who have donuts. Trust me. I walk by and I take two. But, right, what I'm saying here is that we, we, fail, to, we, we fail to reconcile these two people. So what happens is that we be, we then we enter into a, a moment of failure. where well, we fail to live up to the standards in which we've already set for ourselves. And that, in turn, produces guilt, you feel guilty about a decision that you made. Now, that was a small level in diet and something trivial. Now, more, bigger, broader, important things of life, this is what takes place. So then once you fail to live up to the standard that you've set for yourself, then you enter into guilt. You, you feel guilty about the things you've done. And if gets, guilt sits long enough, it turns into shame, where you're no longer just feeling bad for what you did, but you're actually starting to identify yourself as a bad person for doing such. You feel shame about who you are because there's this conflict and you feel that you are a hypocrite. You say one thing with your mouth and you live another thing with your life. And enough of that shame settles down deep into your soul and it leads to bitterness where suddenly you're bitter at everybody else and it turns this inner angst into outer angst, where you are wrestling with the the, the two people that are at war within you and so it turns into outer angst, where you start to demonize and vilify people who disagree with your newfound identity and they become uh, enemies to you and you start launching vicious attacks. Don't believe me? Hop on Twitter for 50 seconds. You'll start seeing or start hop on Facebook, and you'll see people taking it upon themselves to be the truth warriors of this world through Facebook, right? Through sharing ridiculous memes. But if it it settles down, it turns into bitterness, and often this leads us also to isolation, where because we feel that we are not congruent, we push others away so they cannot see the people we pretend to be. They will not see behind the mask that we put on. This way of living, if we create our own identities, we have a crisis when those two people do not agree, when those two people do not see eye to eye, and it leads to this inner turmoil, this inner conflict of always contradicting ourselves, and that exercises itself out in a multitude of ways. The next is what I'd say is identity insecurity, right? If I'm having to create my own identity, I'm constantly looking for approval and validation from others right if i'm having to create my own identity if i'm making all of this up then then everybody uh, th- then everybody's opinions of me matters and so i want approval and validation right and so we begin to bring in approval and validation from people we admire or people we look to and we become easily influenced i find that those those who approve of my identity and their perception of me carries an immense weight so much so that if it feels that I'm being viewed negatively I will change radic- I will radically change everything about myself to fit in now the most stereotypical example of this is think about like a teenager in their early teens right they have this close circle of friends that maybe starts to dress different, listen to different music, do different things, right? And we all call this like the angsty teenager phase, right? Where are wearing all black and dark makeup and hair in your face, right? And we've all probably gone through a phase that you know, we're not proud of. And those of you who didn't go through the angsty phase, I'm sure you had a phase, right? Where you were being manipulated and kind of formed by other people. Now as adults, we think like, that was my younger years. I don't do that anymore, right? But we do with the kind of cars we buy, the kind of clothes we wear, the kind of things we like to show off, to let people know that we have status or wealth or influence. We do the same exact thing even now. And so for us, it really hasn't changed much. The form is just a little bit different. Though you may not have the hair in your face and the black eyeliner, right? You might be uh, making financial decisions or the way that you conduct your life, but you become easily influenced when your identity is found within yourself because you're constantly trying to change it to get approval and validation from others. Now for those who don't accept your new identity, another response to them is because you become easily offended. Now, those who don't approve of your new identity or don't like the way that you've changed, they've instantly become an enemy or a villain. Again, that classic example of a 13-year-old. You don't understand me, Mom. This is who I am now or whatever, right? But we do the same thing even now. People who have been in our lives for years and for decades, we begin to change because we've developed this new identity. And those people who were invested in our lives, who showed love and showed care because they do not agree with who we are today, we push them away and say, you now hate me. But it makes us easily offendable. It makes us really uh, self-conscious I and mean, really insecure that anybody would say even a slightly negative thing. Or, oh, is that the shoes you're wearing? You know, it would be instantly, ah, oh, how could you? This is who I am. Don't you accept me? Don't you, you know? Instantly, it would be those things or conversations around partisan politics or whatever it is. However, you would choose to identify yourself, it easily becomes a heated conversation. When we create our own identities, brothers and sisters, we become incredibly insecure. Because our invention is out for the world to judge. And these fragile identities crumble in the hands of friends and critics alike. So we are constantly rebuilding our identities out of sand and waiting for the next wave of opinions to tear us down again. The last reason I think this is really harmful is because it produces an identity crisis. When our identity is shaped by being true to ourselves, what happens when our sense of identity is suddenly shifted on its head? If I were to ask you, who are you? Some of you would use a bunch of different words to describe yourself. You use your vocation, I am a doctor, I am a barista, I am a banker, I am, et cetera, et cetera. You would use your familiar relationships, I am a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, I'm a cousin, whatever, right? You would choose maybe partisan politics, I'm conservative, I'm liberal, I'm Republican, I'm Democrat, I'm Green Party, right, whatever it is that you are. You would choose relationships, that um, I'm loved by, I have a lot of friends, or I'm popular, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. status, right, upper middle class. However you would choose to describe yourself, there's all of these adjectives that we use to describe ourselves, but they do not get to the essence of what a person is. Now, a lot of us put our stake in these adjectives, the way of describing ourselves, right? But what happens when that gets flipped on its head? Let's say you put your your whole identity in, I am a doctor. This is what I do. What happens when you get in an accident and you can no longer operate, right? What happens when you can no longer practice? Then suddenly you're in identity crisis. You're no longer to be able to do the things you do. That's why, and this is actually like a modern trend that's happening, a phenomena, that that uh, professional sports athletes have a tremendous hard time readjusting to the normal world after they've been doing sports. I was listening to a podcast where Steve Nash, the famous point guard for the Suns, said that the hardest thing that he ever had to do was train himself to not be ready to perform for fifteen to 20,000 people a week and get used to the rhythm of normal life, where it's just your wife, your kids at home. Like There's no more people screaming and no one in awe of who you are. It's just, hey, Steve, how you doing, right? Because you have, they have to make this adjustment, and a lot of players put their whole identity in being a basketball player, and then injury strikes, right? And then they're no longer able to play anymore, and suddenly their whole world crumbles apart. For some of you, it's your family relationships that you, you put so strongly that I'm a husband, or I'm a wife, or I'm a mother, or I'm a father. Well, what happens when a season of life changes? Whether that person leaves or passes away, suddenly you find yourself in an identity crisis. Because I can no longer be a spouse or I can no longer be a father or whatever, you suddenly feel that you've lost a part of who you are. For some of you, it's partisan politics, that you're a conservative, you're a liberal, you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, and then the wrong person gets elected into office, and what happens? The world is ending. It's falling apart. How could it ever happen? Because you've put yourself uh, and your identity in politics. For some of you, it's relationships. It's having these people around you and and being a part of the the party, a part of the conversations, a part of what's happening. What happens when you're alone? Suddenly you feel that you have no identity. So put it in status of financial well-being or economic wealth. But what happens when you lose everything? Who are you? What often happens in a crisis like this is when these things, things take place and somebody's identity is rooted in one of these things, it feels like a death has occurred, and these people grieve because they feel that they've lost themselves. There's a famous quote where they say athletes, professional athletes die twice, once when their career's over and once at the end of their life because you experience a death in the way of the person you used to be. And so this is the way that the, the cultural shapes up our identity. And I hope that you see how fragile that is, that being true to yourself has all kinds of holes in its ideology. And so what's the counterway of Jesus, our redemptive identity? Jesus says this for us. It's not to be true to yourself, but it's to lay down your life. Now, that's not, that's not fancy, you don't want to stitch that on a pillow, right? You don't want to put that on a cup of drink in the morning for coffee. Good morning, I like your mug. What does it say? It says lay down your life. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not romantic. It's not sexy. It doesn't sound like we should do that. That sounds like a great idea. But this is the way in which we uh, 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 have our truest identity. Jesus says in Matthew 16, he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? According to Jesus, the way you find who you are is by dying to yourself. The way you find who you are is by dying to yourself. Now, I understand that sounds like bad news, but this is the only way to true identity freedom. Because here is what the gospel says. The gospel says you experience failure right? You experience this idea that you aren't the person that you want to be, and there's constantly this gap of of your identity. that You're never being congruent. It's never being fully brought together. You're never reaching the person that you wanted to be, and so Jesus says, there's grace. That God in his great love realizes those two people will never be one, and so he gives grace, and we receive forgiveness. When we experience insecurity, insecure about who we are, God gives love. God finds us as we are in our mess and loves us anyways. The scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning even in the fullness of our rebellion, God extends his love. If we are feeling lost, experiencing feeling lost, God gives us purpose That God not only gives us purpose, but gifts and desires and creativity and joy to live in that purpose. When we allow our identity to be shaped by the culture, we realize that, that we can have everything we've ever wanted and always come up wanting. But when we surrender our identities to Jesus, in him we find everything we need and more. Brothers and sisters, you need to know this morning, you are seen You are seen. I know it can feel like we're always, as human beings, fighting for attention, even in our own families and our workplaces, just to be seen. I want to let you know right now, this morning, the Father sees you. You are known. In this day and age, we're always constantly shifting and trying to be somebody that we're not, or trying to measure up to things that we're not, always living in this war of comparison. And you need to know here this morning, you're known. Everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, and you are loved. You are valued. You're not just seen and another cog in the machine, but you are, as the, the psalmist says, the apple of God's eye. That when God looks at you, he, he sees sons and daughters, and you are valued, and you are loved so beyond what you could imagine that God would send his son Jesus down to be crucified on our behalf and to be raised again that we may have life. You are seen. You are known. You are valued. You are loved. And this is the biblical identity that you have. This is who you are in Christ. And it is out of this framework that Daniel and his friends learn how to navigate in Babylon. Verse 1, it says this, In the third year Of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So, what's easy to do, guys, when we read the scriptures, is to go into Bible study mode. Yes, Daniel, he's doing that thing with his friends and there's people, right? And it's like when there's big, long names, and such and such, of Kenezer, or whoever you are, did that. Okay, move on. Where's the good stuff? Where's the fire? Where's the lions? I wanted to move on to the next thing. But I want us to put ourselves in the biblical story. So Daniel and his friends are living in Jerusalem, and suddenly Babylonians take over their place. So let's put this here. Imagine a foreign nation overthrows America. On the news, you see the Statue of Liberty dumped into the ocean and the White House on fire. How are you feeling? Scared? Worried? Freaked out? This is exactly how Daniel and his friends are feeling. As they're being car- and then people are just being massively shipped out to this foreign nation to go and to work for them now. Can you imagine the pandemonium, the chaos, this, the fear that would be in our country? This is what Daniel and his friends are experiencing. And so can you imagine, as they're being shipped off away to Babylon, they're looking back, seeing their city in ruins. Places where they have memories, where they went to school, where they grew up, where they played, all overtaken by this foreign nation. Now, what the Babylonians would do in in early ancient people is, when there were these wars that would take place, it was not about a nation necessarily beating a nation, but the idea and the framework that they had was it was a god beating a god. It was the God of Babylonia Babylonia beating the God of Jerusalem. And so what they would do as an act of kind of gloating is they would take, like again, really important articles of worship that they would have, and they would take them, and they would store them as trophies in a case in their houses of worship. See, we defeated Yahweh. We defeated all these other gods as we came in. So that's what they did. They took important articles of worship, and, and Nebuchadnezzar had them hung up in his shrine as worship, right? All these trophies of these people that he has conquered. And his God has conquered. And so they would do that as kind of a way of gloating. Now, if you know the biblical story, you know the Babylonian king is nothing, right? The Babylonian gods are nothing, right? Yahweh is in control of all of this. And so what's interesting is that Yahweh allows himself, allows his temple to be ransacked. He allows these things to take place so that his people could, could learn faithfulness in exile. Because of their rebellion and their sin and their neglect of the poor and the neglect of the widows and the worship of other gods, they brought this upon himself. But God's going to use this as a moment to teach his people that he's still faithful. What this shows is that God is even in the midst of Babylon. That even when the chaos and despair is running rampant, God is in their midst. Even in dark moments like the one Daniel and his friends are experiencing, God is is on the move. And brothers and sisters, I think this is the word for us today. I understand right now is incredibly dark times. They're a little scary, but listen, these are the moments where God loves to move the most. And it is when things get incredibly dark that God gives incredible supernatural power to a remnant of people. And we're going to see this all throughout the story of Daniel, that God gives supernatural power to the remnant of people who remain When things get dark, God begins to move. Let me let you in on a secret. God's moving right now. Right now, God's moving. It feels like chaos. It feels like everyone's a bunch of 80s don't know what they're doing, right? That's what it feels like at a big, large thing. No one knows what to do with COVID. No one knows what to do with the election. No one knows what to do with anything. And we're supposed to just trust these people, right? It feels like chaos. But what actually is happening is God is on the move. And he's moving through his people. And he's moving through moments like this. Look, there's all kinds of chaos happening in the world out there. But in here, God's doing marvelous things. God's healing people. God's meeting people. God's ministering to people. God is speaking words. God is is erupting at the seams in this place. Because that's what he loves to do. Right now, God is in the midst of Babylon. Right now, God is in our midst, moving on our behalf. Put that in your Christian Mingle profile, right? Looking for, fit for the king's palace, right? Handsome, no physical defect. It says this, um, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they would be trained for three years. Um, And after that, they were to enter the king's service, among whom were those chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So here's what we're seeing happen in the story. Daniel and his friends, because they're good looking, they're smart, they're educated, they're wise. They're like, we're not just going to like, take you over and throw you in jail, we're actually going to get you to work for Babylon. You're going to become a government employee and work in the king's court. So they, they begin this process of assimilation. They begin to train and teach them how to be Babylonians. They give them new clothes. They give them a new education. They give them a new food. They even go as far as giving them a new name. That's not who you are anymore, you are this. Why? Because they don't want them to see themselves as Jews and Babylon's. They want to see themselves as Babylonians. They want them to take this new identity that they have been given. They want them to believe that whoever they were is dead, and it's time to take on their new identity. They're beginning this process of assimilation. And if they are not careful, they can be seduced into the way of Babylon and lose sight of who they are. And so there's this whole process taking place, this whole onboarding process of where they're learning how to be Babylonians. And they want to undo all of their culture, all of their religion, all the stuff they've had before, and give them a new way. Do not be deceived. This is happening now today. It's happening now today where there's a whole new assimilation that we are assimilating into the culture that we have and there are four things I really want us to talk about today that I think are, are pertinent to our church today. Not the church in the world, but here, Zion City Church, us this morning. The first that I think that we need to be careful of is comfort. Because, man, it's comfort nice. Guys, we live in a great place. New Mexico is like one of the best, right? And I might be a little biased, but hey, I really think so. The food, come on, the food, right? The weather, it's like for the most part, we got really great weather, No natural disasters. We're not worried about tsunamis or anything like that, right? We don't have to worry about those things. Things are pretty cush. Cost of living is relatively low. I mean, imagine living in New York in a little studio apartment. It's like four grand a month. Can you imagine that? What could you afford with that here? Do you see what I'm saying? And so we live in a pretty good place. And so it's easy for us to get a little comfortable. This is nice. Food's good. Weather's good. Life's good. It's all good, right? It's easy to get into a place of comfort. We've all been so sold that a successful life is a life of comfort. It's the nice house. It's the put-together family. It's the Netflix and the refrigerated air-conditioned house. It's the whole shebang. But this is not the successful life that Jesus says. Jesus says we need to be living lives of consequence. We need to be living lives of Meaning. What we really need more than anything is not to just sit comfortably on the sidelines of history, but we need to be involved in what's happening in our world. We don't want to look back on this moment and be like, the world was in chaos and in need of the church, and I was chilling at home, binging Netflix, doing life. We want to look back on this moment and think, I responded when I saw the call of God. That I was willing to leave my comfort for the sake of the kingdom. We must sacrifice our lives of comfort and embrace a life of purpose. We must embrace our life of purpose that God has called us to and and get away from comfort. Now, I'm not saying, so let's all sell our house and live in tents. God has called us to the place that we are. But it's important for us to be aware of how, how subtle you can slip into that comfort mentality. You know, you've been in those places where you're being served on hands and foot at a restaurant or something like that. Everything, everything is catered to you. What do you want to drink? You want to refill? You want this? You want that whatever? And you get a dirty spoon. Ha, 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 can you believe this? A dirty spoon. Who do you think I am? A savage? You know, it's like suddenly you feel offended that something like that could ever happen to me. And that right there is, that's a red flag, right? That is a massive red flag. That you have, you have adapted a spirit of entitlement. Now, obviously, no one wants to eat with a dirty fork, but there's no need to be offended by it. And so we as followers of Jesus need to forsake a life of comfort and embrace a life of purpose. The next thing I want to talk about that's really important is Distraction. Oh, gosh, there are so many distractions. We live in the day and age of distractions. Anytime there's a conversation about coming up for something with the church, whether it's our pre-gathering prayer or whether it's community groups, whether it's service, the first answer I always hear is, I'm so busy. Oh, I'm so busy. I have so many things going on, this, that, whatever. Right? And I believe you. You probably are wicked busy. But what are you busy doing? That is the real question. Because I'm going to be real honest with you guys, there's a whole lot of time that gets spent on nonsense for me, right? Whether it's in the vortex of YouTube, whether it's playing a video game, whether it's this great new documentary, whatever it is for us, we have all these things, this time vortex that just suck us in. It was like, that was four hours? My gosh, I haven't brushed my teeth, you know? And so we all have those things, and it's so easy to be distracted because, man, entertainment's nice, now, this is not a sermon to say, forsake all movies, never listen to music, go read your Bible and pray and do nothing else. But that would be awesome. You, if you could do that, do it for me, please. But it is a way to say we must be intentional about the things that we allow into our lives. We kind of just willingly let anything in and do anything and have anything. We need to be intentional about our time because if you are anything like me, it's easily be, to be distracted. It's easy to be on a goal, on a, oh, squirrel. You know, it's like easy to be taken away by something else instantaneously. We have to have a focus. The next thing I want to talk about, honestly, guys, is sexual sin. And I think this is a real problem here and now. With the epidemic that's happening through our church, uh, through churches and watching pornography, and just straight up sexual sin, guys, I think that this is a real stronghold. I think it's important that we talk about it. There is grace and forgiveness that is found in Jesus, but we are neck deep in a culture obsessed with sex. Every advertisement, movie, songs, like think about some of the stuff that is playing right now. There's like a few in particular that I'm like, how did this get passed legally? Like they were able to do these things. Everywhere we look, we're getting messaging about sex. Now don't think that you're just like, well, I'm just a Christian and, you know, I'm good and all that other stuff is other. This is forming you. When you got it on the radio and you listen to it or whatever, and you're watching the show, whatever it is, it is forming you, and we need to be mindful of that. We must we must sacrifice uh, with a life of sexual integrity. We have been sacrificing, rather, a life of sexual integrity on the altar of pleasure, and we need to be mindful of that. The next thing I want to talk about, guys, is compromise. Now, I don't think the biggest thing threatening our church is like some theological heresy. I'm not worried about like, no one in here believes in the supremacy of Christ, or we need to talk about substitutionary atonement because these are the things that are threatening. That's not, that's not most of our problem. What most of our problem is, is just compromise. Just a little bit of drift. Just a little, it's just not a big deal, right? You know you've had too much to drink. You've already had your two or whatever. You're like, ah, what's one more? It's Friday night, the kids are out bed. What's one more, right? Or it's watching a show. You're like, well, we probably shouldn't be watching this. But the storyline's so great. Like, can you believe this? This is phenomenal. Scorsese directly. this. What's going on here, right? And so you just, oh, just uh, a couple more. We'll just see. We'll just see what happens. right? We have to go beyond this part. We don't know if they die or what. Ha- we got to watch. And so you just allow a little bit of compromise. It's no big deal. It's just one report. The company won't even know. It's amongst thousands of other reports. If I just fudge just two numbers, like, what's the big, this company makes millions anyways. What does it matter for me if I just, you know, a little bit? And it's just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and you drift. And you've compromised. You've allowed little things into your life. Now, here's what I'm not saying. There's a conversation to be had about legalism. Right, so what I'm not saying is forbid all things and we're going back to these cloths and sackcloths and we're just going to pray. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying be legalistic about everything in your life, but I'm saying you know where the line is. You know what you can, you can handle and what you can't handle. You know what's, uh, what's, what should be happening what shouldn't be happening. Think in your mind, if Netflix was filming me doing what I'm doing now, watching what I'm watching now, saying what I'm saying now, how would I feel, right? This is not something that I should be doing, I should want to be doing, right? And so there's a real conversation to be had about legalism. It's dangerous, it's harmful. I've been in cultures like that and they suck the life out of what God's doing in the midst of them. So that's not what I'm saying here is we're moving all towards these strong, rigid rules, but I'm, I need you to know that compromise, compromise kills the same way legalism does. It just sucks the life out of the room when we allow compromise. First Peter, Peter says this, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for sin. And that's where I want to leave that. You, you have freedom. Be free in Christ. Enjoy the things God has given you. If it's a glass of wine with dinner, if it's watching a hilarious movie with the family, whatever it is for you guys, you live as free people, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for sin. Don't allow open gates to be able to corrupt your life ultimately. Next thing I want to talk about is a holy resolve. This is what we see, how Daniel responds to all this compromise and all these things happening. Watch what happens. Verse 8 says this, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God caused the official to show favor on him and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would have my head because of you. So what does Daniel do? How does Daniel choose to respond? He chooses to respond by resolving within himself not to eat the food or the wine, not to eat the meat or the wine. Now there's a few ideas behind why people think Daniel did this. One they think is because it, the food was sacrificed to idols, right? The only problem with that is that the vegetables that Daniel would have eaten would likely have been sacrificed too. So I mean, at some point he had to be making a compromise because he's not eating nothing. He's eating fruits and vegetables and eating and, drink, and drinking water. And so it, that whole idea of food sacrificed to idols it kind of works, but kind of doesn't because at some point he makes a compromise. The next thing is that food was not kosher, right? It was not Jewish-approved to be able to eat the meat. The only problem with that was that the wine was kosher. It was kosher for Daniel to drink wine, but still he refused to drink the wine. So most biblical scholars think it was a third option, and I agree. I think it was eating the food for Daniel was a symbol of seduction for the way of Babylon. That this was an intentional decision that Daniel made to protest what was happening to his people. Joyce Baldwin, a commentator, says this, The defilement of Daniel, Daniel feared, was not so much ritual as much as a moral defilement, arising from the flattery gifts and favors which entailed hidden implications of loyal support. Let's say you had a friend visit from out of town. They're not from New Mexico. What is the first thing you take them to do? Is it see the tram? You know, is it to go to Carlsbad Caverns? Psych, it's to eat. That is the first thing that we do. They get into the car. Have you eaten? No? Right? And the first thing you take them is you take them to a place where they can have chili. That's what you do first and foremost. You're like, this is our pride. This is our blood. This is who we are, right? And so you you feed them. And there's tamales and sopapillas. You're just shoveling it. Eat, 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 right? Because you're trying to get them to see New Mexico's amazing. And here's how you see. Don't look at the weeds. Don't look at Central. Look at the tamales, right? Or look at the sopapillas, whatever it is. Eat the chili, you see, you see, you know? So that's the first thing that you do. Why? Because food and culture are closely associated. They are hand in hand together, food and culture. Anytime you're going to have a party or anything like that, have you ever been to a party where there wasn't food? It's awkward. You're like, there's mints? I came hungry. I didn't eat breakfast for this, you know? It, it's it, Because food is such an integral part of how we celebrate and how we are who we are and how we have culture, meaning, and conversation. Food is an integral part of culture. So as Daniel shows up to this place, man, they got sirloin steak and rack of lamb, and they got all of it because these are the king's officials. And what the king wants to show is he's showing off. You know, There's caviar, there's all this other stuff to let them all know, I got money, don't worry about it. But as they partake of it, they're kind of saying, I rely on the king to supply for me. And not only that, but I'm enjoying all the luxuries. What is, is that? Is that New York Strip? My goodness. You know, it's like it's, they start to be enticed and brought in. So Daniel, as a way of protesting, says, we're not going to eat that, guys. And Now, this is a, a 1908 Merlot. They're like, nope, we're not drinking it, guys, because this is a larger symbol. We're not going to be seduced by Babylon. Look, we'll take your name. You want to call me Belteshazzar, Abadnego, whatever other name you want to call me, go for it. Call me whatever you want to call me. You want to give me new clothes, sure, I'll wear those new clothes. Whatever you want to do, that's fine, man. What, that, that's fine. You want me to go to this school and take this class and read this book, whatever, I'll do it. But one thing I won't do, man, is I won't, I won't eat the food. you got to know that because I don't rely on you. I know you think you're king of the world. I know you think you've just dominated my God, but listen, you don't. That's not the case. So I'm not going to eat. So Daniel lets his official, the guy who's overseeing him, like, hey, dude, I'm not going to do this. And now what's crazy is the text is that God gave Daniel favor with this guy already. And he's like, hey, bro, I understand you don't want to do it, but, dude, you're going to get me killed. Look, if all you're eating is fruits and vegetables and you show up all scrawny and everyone's all lean and ripped and smart and there you are in the corner, you know, he's like, that's on me, bro. It's like my job is to get you guys looking good. And he's like, if you're just eating fruits and vegetables, bro, we ain't going to pack on that weight. You're not going to look that great. And so he's worried, he's concerned that this is going to ultimately cause his demise. But notice it says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself, regardless of what was going to come of it. He said, this is the line that we're drawing, this is the place that we're making distinction. And so how do we as followers of Jesus resist temptation in our culture? Resist being brought in? The first is with repentance. Now I know that this language is not popular and it's only reserved for, like, people with signs on the street corner, like, repent, repent, repent. But this is a biblical idea. And it's an important one. It means to change your mind. It means to change your ways. We need, right now, a wave of humility and repentance to wash over our church. When we when we look ourselves in the mirror and repent for the ways that we've allowed compromise, brothers and sisters, we need to repent of our comfort. There are so many times that we take the easy way out instead of taking the way that we know we're supposed to take we need to repent of our distraction. There's so many times we know our time is being wasted, but man, we enjoy it so much. We need to repent of our sexual sin, no longer just accepting pleasure as it comes to us, but instead choosing a better way. And you need to repent of our compromise, no longer allowing areas of drift in our life, but living with an intentionality. And the next heart posture we need to have is resolve, to settle in our heart where the line is in our life. We need to have resolve, to establish in our heart where we will not go. That w- The words of Jesus haunt me. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What are you willing to give up to put your soul on the line? That's the conversations we need to be having. What are we willing to allow in our lives? and Make decisions on that. What are you willing to sell your soul for? We need to establish the lines that we will not cross. Just as Daniel did, right? We'll wear the clothes, we'll go to the schools, we'll take the name, but we will not eat of the food and drink. The question for you, brothers and sisters, is where's the line for you? Where's the area of compromise for you? Where do you take the stand? I know right now the Spirit's speaking to people because there's things that he's bringing up right now in your life that you're all, ooh, and that's areas God's ministering to you at. There are areas you know the line's been crossed and you're like, Yeah, we need to pull it back. We need to bring it back. We need to repent, and we need to resolve. Watch what happens next, verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance to that of the young man who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed and tested them for 10 days. So Daniel says, all right, look, bro, we won't do the whole school like this. Give me 10 days. 10 days, I'll eat fruits and vegetables and drink water, and these guys can have the rack of lamb, the sirloin steak, all that other stuff, and if 10 days we don't look as good, then hey, you know, it, well, it is what it is, we'll have another conversation at that point. Now think about how risky this is, right, so if it doesn't work, then what happens, then what is Daniel supposed to do, like all this stuff is kind of weighing on it, and I love this heart posture, is Daniel saying, if God doesn't show up, we don't know what to do. Now, I want you to think about the logic there, right? You got guys who are working out and eating good and protein and packing it down, and there you are with a caprese salad, baby, you know? And it's like, how are we supposed to, like, pack on the weight and get look big? So they're relying on God totally. Like, God, we don't know how to do this. Now, there's people who have taken this and said, and this is the diet we're supposed to have, and get the Daniel fast for $25.99, and this is what you got to eat. I don't think that's what this is talking about here, okay? I don't think this is God's, like, ordained diet that you're supposed to have. This was a, a way of protesting for Daniel, okay? If you want to be vegan, be vegan. But I'm just saying, it's not at all what the text is trying to say. But I love this heart. If God does not show up, it all crumbles. And this is the kind of heart I want our church to have. We need to be people of faith who say, if God doesn't show up, if he doesn't move, if he doesn't show up, then we're we're, we're wasting away. We're crumbling. It all falls apart. And this is the heart posture that we need to have. We need to be a people of faith who trust and believe God anyways. Next it says this, verse 15. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the raw food. So the guard took away their choice food and their wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these young four men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the time, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and chanters in his whole kingdom. It is at this moment where they choose to respond in faith that God responds with favor. and God blesses them. and God shows up like only he can. I, guess, I mean, that's pretty extra to be like, they are ten times better than everybody. Like, ten? That's, like, that's a pretty extreme. Ten times better because of the way that they chose to do this. They looked better, they were smarter, they were better educated, all that stuff, because God gave them favor. Now, this moment seems kind of like a pretty insignificant moment. It's like, all right, dude, he didn't eat meat, get over it, like, move on. But what's happening here is this will form the heart posture of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It would form these guys for the rest of their time in Babylon, because here they realize God's moving. God's moving on our behalf. Dude, we shouldn't have looked better. Dude, we're not smarter, like... We just got pulled it, but God showed up. God intervened, and so he's moving. And all of this is born out of their identity. They know who they are. They are kids of Yahweh. They are God's people, and no matter where they are or what's happening, he's got them. Now I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close. But as we close, I want to read this prayer that Jesus prays over us as we navigate our identity in him, and as we navigate how to hold to our identity at such a time of compromise. Jesus prays this. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. May we live in the identity God has given to us, that we are sons and that we are daughters, that we are seen, known, valued, and loved, and that we have been given a purpose not to be overtaken not to be taken out of this world rather, but sent into it as holy people set apart for him. Brothers and sisters, our cultural moment calls for a holy resolve. Us determining in our hearts where we draw the line, born out of our identity in who we are in him. Let's pray. Jesus, To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.